Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. It's Holy Week. It's the most important date in the Christian calendar. There's nothing like it. Christmas is the biggest social celebration that this, this society in Australia has. But Easter is the pinnacle of the Christian calendar. Without it, what do we have? It is the high point where the narrative of the Bible comes together in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in him overpowering death. But this Sunday is a bit different. We're one week out, and it's what's commonly known as Palm Sunday. Now, I'm going to preach through this a bit, but I'm not going to preach through the explanation of Palm Sunday because it takes two seconds to explain. Jesus entering the the, um, city of Jerusalem on his way to be crucified and his way to be um, made king of the world. He comes in and he's greeted as a king and people lay palm leaves down. Palms, we preach it on a Sunday, Palm Sunday. It's literally that easy. So there's that, just in case anyone goes, Palm Sunday, what does that mean? Now you know, that's why. But what does it mean mean? Like, what does it actually mean? Well, obviously, there's a lot more layers underneath because classic Jesus never just hands us something, always gives us something to unpack. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. There's always more. There's always an unpacking. There's always another layer. It's beautiful that way. So, like I said, this is the pinnacle of the Christian calendar. And it's the pinnacle of the Christian calendar because it's the beginning of the end of the story of Jesus. As, it, as in his life here on earth. But the beginning of the end of the story of Jesus is just the beginning for us, amen? That is where our life begins. And so the beginning of the end of the story of Jesus here on earth comes with him coming to Jerusalem. Now, there's an old saying that all roads lead to Rome. But for Jesus, that wasn't the case. For Jesus, all roads led to Jerusalem. Jesus was always going to finish his life in Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, he weeps over the city, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've longed to gather you in. You're the, he's saying, in essence, you're the heartbeat of my people. and I want you to know my love, but I also know how deeply you're going to reject me. There's this preeminent grief, a grief that comes about before he even physically suffers, that Luke portrays so well. But Jesus enters the city, And Jerusalem, of course, is not just any city. Jerusalem is not Adelaide, right? Somebody can enter Adelaide and we're like, cool, welcome to the airport. Um, We just put a hotel here. It's pretty snazzy. You know, it's very exciting. Look at at the airport. It's almost international standard now. Jerusalem, though, is a whole nother kettle of fish. We're talking about maybe the most hotly contested city in history. Maybe the richest, most faith-filled, wonderful city that's ever lived. It is a city that is critical to three faiths, obviously the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and the Islamic faith. All three hold a claim to Jerusalem. In Islam, Jerusalem is the third most important city after Mecca and Medina. So it is this critically important city. And 2,000 years ago, in comes Jesus, ostensibly just a Jew coming to celebrate the Passover with many other Jews. But it was no ordinary day. Now, the thing about Jerusalem that you want to understand is that in New Testament times, not only was it this incredibly uh, important place for the Jewish people, at, at that point it was just about to become one for the Christians and later on for the Islamic people, but for the Jewish people, Jerusalem was the 
the heartbeat. It was the, it was the physical center of their country. In, in, it was the political center. It was the social center. It was the center of where everything happened. If you came to Jerusalem, it's because you wanted something powerful to happen. And the reason it was so important was not because of the palace of the king, which was there, but because of the temple. The temple was the true heart of Jerusalem. They were on their second version of the temple by that point. King Solomon, the great King Solomon, who you may have heard of, he built the first temple with a little assist from his dad, David, who prepped all the stuff for him. And so Solomon builds this incredible temple. It's one of the wonders of the world in the ancient era. And it gets destroyed because of the rebellion of the Israelites over and over again. But years and years later, a man called Zerubbabel, it becomes governor over that region. And with another handful of faith-filled Jewish people, Nehemiah, you might have heard of, Ezra, Haggai, these people gather together some of the remnants and come back and they rebuild the city. And they start with two things, the walls and the temple. They say, we need to protect this city, but it's what we need to protect that we're worried about. Don't worry about your living conditions. You'll deal with them later. Let's build this temple. Let's worry about the living God. And that's why the temple was so important. Not just because it represented religion, but because for the Jews, the temple was the physical presence of God. The physical presence of God in the holiest of holies, behind the curtain, the presence of God. That's a lot to take in. And Jesus comes strolling into this on a donkey, as only Jesus can. Now, here's the other thing. They had a palace. They had a temple. You know what they didn't have? Power. They didn't really have any power. The Romans were in charge. The Romans were ruling all of that area, and Israel, Judea in particular, was just one region that they oversaw. And so even though the Israelites ostensibly had a king and they had a little civic government, it was really a bit of a puppet government. And you see it later on, if you're familiar with the crucifixion story, all the Jewish leaders are excited. They're like, yes, let's crucify Jesus. Who do we go and see? Do we bring him to the king? Well, no, um, we'll, we, we better ask um, the governor. It's kind of like how Australia's got a governor general. Like when something, you know, generally speaking, the prime minister's allowed to do stuff, but if something really important happens, you've got to go to the governor general. It's always like kind of amusing, really, isn't it? But in this period in time as well, the temple looked better than arguably it ever had. The king, the Jewish king at the time, well, sorry, not when Jesus entered the city, but the king at the time of Jesus' birth was a guy named Herod. Herod the Great, he's known as. I doubt the thousands of innocents that he massacred thought of him that way, but that's how he's known in the history books. Herod the Great. The reason he's known as Herod the Great is he spent a lot of his time restoring the temple. Now, he's not allowed to, to muck around with what's inside the temple. That is strictly prescribed by Jewish law. What he is allowed to muck around with is the outside. You know someone doesn't have much character when they're like, I'm not worried about what's going on on the inside. Just let me fix some stuff up on the outside so it looks really pretty. Why do politicians do big public works campaigns? Because they want to be remembered. I know, that's very cynical and a generalisation. There are many, many great politicians, okay? Like, we're about to go to the election. You've got to vote for somebody. Somebody is worth voting for. I'm just saying, this is why Herod did it. This is why some do it. They go, I want to build something, maybe so the city's better, maybe so my name goes down in the history books. Well, mission accomplished, I guess, in one sense. So the temple was bigger than ever. The king was stronger than ever. He had, he had more more preeminence. He had more power than ever, although under the Roman rule. 
And, uh, and the temple, uh, and uh, Jerusalem rather, looked to be moving towards this new era of religious and political stability. Then Herod dies. Yeah, that's about the reaction I would have expected. <laughs> Herod dies, and he divides up the kingdom, and he puts them in the hands of these tetrarchs. One's called Philip, one's called Herod Antipas, one's called, I think it's like Archelaus, I can never pronounce his name, but anyway, he gets stripped of his powers at some stage, so it doesn't matter. Again, this is under the Roman government. So we go into this stage where suddenly they think, we've got this kingdom, we've got this king, and then in comes into this mess, Jesus as only Jesus can. I want to suggest this to you on Palm Sunday. The day Jesus entered Jerusalem, on his way to the cross, he entered to be the king. The king. Jesus was many things, had many labels, but we're going to focus on king tonight. So I want to ask you this. Who's king of your life? Who's king of your life? Let's talk about the monarchy for a second. The monarchy, not a hot topic particularly, unless, you know, you're a big subscriber to New Idea. Does New Idea still exist? Does anybody know? Yeah? I mean, honestly, like I think after, you know, the nuclear holocaust, New Idea is going to be the last thing left standing. But there's, there's tw- the New Idea fans in the audience are like, oh, I don't want to talk about how big a fan I am, but that's fine. There are 26 monarchies across the globe, just in case you didn't know, from a, a wide variety of, of nations. So let's, let's look at a few different forms of monarchy. So the King of Malaysia, this is fun. The King of Malaysia is elected from a group of sultans and they change every five years. So it's like a democratic monarchy. You know, you're the king, but you have to get voted in to be the king. Go figure. The uh, king, king Juan Carlos of Spain, though, is the total opposite, right? Now, get this. He's 75 years old. He was handed power by Franco after World War II, the dictator. Not a great guy, not to be confused with James Franco, Francisco Franco. Um, but he promptly dismantled the regime after Franco's death and brought democracy to Spain. So the monarchy created democracy. So these are kind of two sides of the same coin here. Uh, look, I'm not going to pronounce this right. I'm just going to have a crack. Jigme Kesar Namyal Wanchuk is the Druk Gyalpo of Bhutan. Why am I saying all of that, apart from your amusement? Here's the reason. His official title is Dragon King. That's cool. The head of Bhutan is the Dragon King of Bhutan. In Swaziland, King Mswati III has the formal title of Nwanyama, an honorific that also means lion. So if Swaziland and Bhutan went to war, it's the dragon versus the lion, which is basically Game of Thrones. Like, I don't know what's going I didn't know this. This is why you research things, people. <laughs> Brunei. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Sultan of Brunei. His official title is Sir, which is impressive. I don't know how he got that. Sir Hassan al-Bolkia. And he's been Brunei's Sultan and Prime Minister since 1967. That's a lot of power. And he appoints Virtually all of Brunei's ruling bodies. He appoints the Legislative Council. He appoints the Supreme Courts. And it's an Islamic nation. And he appoints the Sharia Courts. And his 1,800-room palace, 1,800-room palace, is considered the world's largest private residence. And you would hope so at that size. The Sultan of Brunei has a lot of power. And finally, the former king of Thailand. Now, he's died very recently, a couple of years ago. Um, but I'm talking about him because he reigned for 70 years. So Queen Liz got him in the end, but it was close. It was close. But he died in 2016. Now, this is the kind of power he held. He had constitutional powers, including the ability to veto legislation. 
So you could make a law, bring it to the king of Thailand, and he's like, nah, don't like it. And that's it. You're just done. Like, I don't know how long you spent preparing that law. Doesn't matter. The king said no. He's also able to pardon criminals. Now that gets into a really Easter zone, doesn't it? Because the crowd had the capacity to pardon one criminal. We'll get to that on, on Friday. But Bumibol, that's the king's name, was also an interesting figure on his own merits because he was an accomplished jazz musician. Why just be king of Thailand when you can be a jazz musician too? And he patented a waste a wastewater aerator. I didn't know what that meant either, so I looked it up. It's what you do when you basically put oxygen into sewage to break up the sewage. So the king of Thailand was like, I'm bored. I'm going to help our sewage be better. How about that? King of Thailand. But he's passed away now. But here's the thing. Why am I talking about the monarchy? Because you know what all these people have in common? They're kings. You know what they also basically have in common? They don't really have any power. Very few of these people have power. And there's a hard push from organizations all across the globe to abolish monarchies. There's the Republic, the group in Britain, which is aggressively pushing for the abolition of the monarchy to disband the royal family of Great Britain. I don't really know how you disband a family, right? Like that seems too far. But anyway, arguing that it's outdated and costs too much money to maintain. Even Australians who have absolutely no attachment to the Queen in practice... Like, it's not like Elizabeth's down here saying good day every week. Um, we're advocating for being a republic, basically. 52% at last count want to be in a republic. 26%, uh, 20, 24%, 26%, something like that, don't care. And only 22% want to be a monarchy. And they're, generally speaking, all of the older end of the spectrum. It seems like this is about to happen. We're going to be a republic. Most of the monarchies across the globe are going to end up becoming democracies. And in theory... We cheer. Have we really seen anything lately? This has nothing to do with the upcoming election, honestly. But have we really seen much over the last five years to help us think that our way of governing is better? Have we really, have we really seen as we look across Brexit, as we look across what's happened in America, in Germany, even to a lesser degree, a much lesser in Australia, have we really, do we really think that that is the best way to decide power? Now, it might be. It might be. But what I want to suggest to you tonight is that we're actually not meant to be a dem democracy. We're not meant to be a republic. We're definitely not meant to be a socialist state. We're actually meant to be a monarchy, but with a different king. We're meant to be a monarchy with a different king. Let me give you one story to explain the power of the monarchy. So Walter Raleigh, who was an explorer and a particular favourite of Queen Elizabeth I, so Walter, there's a story, maybe apocryphal, good story though, about Sir Walter Raleigh and Queen Elizabeth I walking down the streets of London and there was a particularly muddy section of the ground and Raleigh jumps in front of her, whips off his cloak, places it on the ground so that Queen Elizabeth can walk across without getting her shoes dirty. This is not a monarch demanding people get down for them. This is somebody who loves their monarch so much that they would do anything for them. There's a subtle difference. There's something about the monarchy. How do I know that's true? Because everyone tuned in to watch um, Harry and Meghan's wedding, didn't they? There's something about the monarchy. Let's jump into scripture tonight. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 21. It's going to be up behind you um, if you don't have it with you. But by all means, uh, download the Version app if you do. Follow it on your phones. See what the Lord's going to say to you. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. This is where we start our story. When they approached Jerusalem... 
and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey foal. A, a donkey, uh, where are we? Sorry. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is Matthew's way of saying everything you talked about, said was going to happen. It's happening. Pay attention. He wants us to pay attention. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Remember the story about Sir Walter Raleigh? Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then, and in John's Gospel, that says palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. Cutting branches from the tree, spreading it on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this is really interesting. There's a lot going on here. Let me unpack it a bit for you. What does God want us to hear in this passage? It is clear that the people are welcoming him as king. This is what the crowds are chanting for. When they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, that's because they're saying, this person is a king under the lineage of King David. It would be like saying, Hosanna to the son of Queen Elizabeth, which would be, again, a weird thing to say to Harry. He seems much more chilled out than that. But you could, I guess, in theory, and it would make sense in that sense. Hosanna to the son of David, because he's in the lineage of King David. Now, that's important because there was a prophecy that God spoke over the house of David and said, there will be a king on your throne forever and ever. And they were waiting for that king to come. So that's one reason it's important. Here's the second reason. It matters because Jesus coming as king points to political upheaval. Now, we sometimes get this idea with Jesus where it's like, Jesus, he's just love. He's just peace. He's just kindness. Jesus is all those things. If you've ever been a parent, you know that sometimes love means saying no. Sometimes peace means sending people to their rooms at opposite ends of the house and locking the doors without them knowing it until dinner time. It's fine. It's fine. Don't call anybody. It's fine. Sometimes doing these things requires hard action. Here's something that Jesus said. I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. We kind of shunt that passage off to the side because it doesn't fit comfortably with our image of Jesus. Now, did Jesus mean he was coming to bring violence? No. He meant he was coming to bring upheaval because the message of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, was such that it ends up being a real block for a lot of people. People stumble on it. They trip over it. They can't deal with it. So Jesus comes in and everyone can't help but think, here's another guy who wants to be king. And you just know for every person shining, Hosanna! The other person's going, how long do you think this lasts? How long do you reckon he'll survive? If anyone's seen Jerry Maguire, there's this amazing scene like Jerry publishes this manifesto at his sports agency and he comes in and everyone's standing up cheering like, yes, finally somebody said it. Yeah. And while they're cheering, two guys talking to each other like, how long do you think he lasts? I give him less than a week. Great job, buddy. You did it. Yeah, there's this, there is this sense that there's people in the crowd going, we'll wait and see. Thanks, mate. Here's why. Only 100 years earlier, they'd had another king. 
A king that had come in, a king that had seemed to be the perfect kind of king. His name was Judas Maccabeus. And he was responsible for this uprising against the ruling power before the Romans came in. They were called the Seleucids. They were ruling over Israel. Basically, long story short, they came and desecrated the temple, the most holy place. So the people rose up, led by Judas Maccabeus. There was a physical, violent revolution. They cast out the Seleucids, created some independence around Jerusalem for a short period of time, and installed Judas as king. And for a hundred or so years, they had a mini dynasty, a mini dynasty of rulers. Now, why does this matter? Because that's the king everyone wanted. They're like, yes, the warrior king, the tough king, the buff king. This is what we've been looking for all these years. Someone to throw off the yoke of oppression, just like the prophets promised us. But Jesus comes in a little differently. Instead of coming in mounted on a stallion, he comes in on a donkey. Jesus comes humbly. He doesn't come expecting a huge parade. There's no ticker tape. There's no royals there to welcome him, bowing down at his feet. Instead, the common folk are there putting palm leaves down. Why is that significant? Well, they did the same thing for Judas Maccabeus. They're saying, here's our king. We're recognizing you. We know we're the common folk, but we, you're our king. Now, I've got to just choose a direction and go with it now because there's so much about the king and the kingdom of God we can get into. But what I want to say is this, as we come into Easter and as we witness the entry of Jesus the King into his city, towards the temple, towards the presence of God itself, we have to consider what it means to have a king. We have to consider that because we don't have one here in Australia. We've got the queen and we're just like, ah, still alive? Great job. Like basically that's our relationship with the queen at this point. Another royal wedding? Looks good. Looks good. That's our relationship with the monarchy at this point. But as Christians, as people who are trying to follow Jesus, and if you're here and you don't know what that means yet, then I'm so excited because this is a day where you can discover the most important relationship you'll ever come across, to have a relationship with Jesus. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have to get our heads around what it means to have a relationship with the King. Because when we get to Easter... And we think of this story that many of us, even if we're not in the church, if we're not familiar with this, we would have heard some story about Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. We might only know that. We might not know what that means. But even that sentence by itself, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, causes us to go, well, what are our sins? Let me tell you, this is basically what sin is with regard to the king, ignoring the king. When you go past the king, when you meet the king, and you're saying, I'm not bowing, I'm not shaking your hand, I'm not giving you honor, you're not the king, effectively that is what sin is. Why? Because it makes somebody else the king. If you're not acknowledging the king, then somebody else has got to be king. And I've got to tell you, church, it's really simple to identify that in this culture. It's us. We want to be king of our own lives. We sing king of my heart, but we kind of want to be king of our life. Like, yeah, take my heart. I'm just going to put it over there and the rest of me is going to go on Tinder. Take my heart, but actually I'm going to just sit down in Netflix or I'm going to go out partying or I'm just going to go spend my money however I want, which is its own, own form of injustice. When we come towards the cross, we're immediately confronted with this idea of who is our king because here's what the Jewish people wanted. 
They wanted Jesus to come down to cause some kind of ruckus, but a controllable ruckus, because when we're trying to control things as king, we don't want a ruckus that we can't control. We want this chaos to be, you know, in order, okay? He wanted Jesus to cause some sort of chaos, probably to cast off the yoke of Roman oppression, to sit on the Jewish throne, and then to produce more heirs that would be king after king after king. And who knows, insanity is wanting the same of what you've already had that didn't work before. Like, this is what the Jewish people wanted. They wanted Jesus to come and be enthroned in purple. They wanted to place a crown on his head and seat him on a throne. But instead, Jesus is clothed in scarlet as his back is torn to shreds by the whips of the guards. Instead, he's crowned with thorns as the guards mockingly place a crown on his head and a sign that says, King of the Jews, above him. And his throne is a cross, nailed to it, with arms open wide. Jesus subverted all the expectations, not because he died. All the kings died because he laid down his life on purpose. This is the king, and look, here's our fundamental problem with kings, right? We don't like being told what to do. A king comes in, and they say, this is what it means to be in my kingdom. And you're like, no thanks. I want to be in control of my life. I do. Can I just be real? I do. Being real is one of our core values here at Encounter. Given my own way, I would just be as in control of my own life as possible. I would be king over my own life. I would make all my own decisions. I would go off. I would leave responsibilities when I wanted to, but come back to them and expect them to be there. I would do fun stuff when I wanted to. It would be exactly as I wanted. But here's the thing. When we act like this, and people act like this all the time, maybe you're feeling convicted. I don't know. I'm not speaking to anyone in particular except myself, really. But if you're feeling that, that conviction, this sense that, oh, yeah, man, okay, whatever, yeah, I, I can. It's my life, right? I have independence. Now we're hitting the, the highest cultural idol in the West. When we have this idea that we're going to put Jesus the king over here and put Micah's king up here, do you know what we're actually doing? We're letting someone else entirely rule and reign in our lives. Because when have you ever had control of your life? When? I can count on zero fingers the number of times I have. All the times that I think I've got control, something comes in and sideswipes me. I get sick. I don't have control over that. My kids do something. I don't have control over that. Somebody external to me does something that affects me. I don't have control over that. And that's just the stuff I recognize. More insidious, more dangerous. You need to hear this. Are the kings you put above yourself and you don't even realize you're doing it? The times that you decide, do you know what? I deserve to go shopping. I deserve to. I deserve to go on a splurge today. I've earned it. Have you? I've earned it. So who's your God? Your credit card? Afterpay? PayPal? Or maybe it's different. Maybe you go, yeah, I'm just having one drink. Yeah, I know it's Monday at 9 a.m., but it's my life. I can do what I want. I don't care. You can't judge me. It's 12 o'clock somewhere. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. I'm having a drink. It's like, really? Okay. I mean, you can. It is up to you. But who's God of your life? Who's king of your life? And what we do, step by step in our lives, is we keep putting another king above us. And we never even know. We never even know 
It sneaks in. This is not just as simple as lining up for the iPhone every time it comes out and just bowing at the altar of Steve Jobs. This is like, really, we put these kings and queens in our lives and they break us because you know what bad kings and queens do? They put a burden on the people. They put a burden on your back that you can't carry. If you are a slave to alcohol, do you know what that does? It gives you the shakes. It gives you the inability to hold down a job. It gives you the inability to have good relationships with people. A dear friend of mine is in prison. Do you know why? At its heart, because he can't control alcohol. He can't. Alcohol controls him. And his job over the last 12 months has been to go, who is king of my life? And he's desperately trying to make it Jesus. But it's so damn hard. But every time you let something else into your life, every time you go, Jesus, you're pretty good, you're like, like the crowd said, this is Jesus the prophet. He knows some stuff, but I'm Mike's a king. I'm king in here. You can take your hungry jack's crown, but you're giving it to someone else to rule you. Someone else is ruling you. Think of the burdens you carry. Some of us here, we live in a culture where we're making anxiety our king. We're not doing it on purpose. I've been there like I, this mental health is a, one of my battles in life. But we can make that our king and it becomes a burden we can't bear. Or maybe it's something entirely different. The one I see all the time is a relationship becomes your king. You start dating somebody and you're like, this person is the one. Like, oh my gosh, that's a whole sermon series coming some point, I promise you. This person is the one. And then you put all your hopes and dreams on that person. And that person's like, cheapest. I cannot bear up under that weight. Nobody can. But we do it and people do it to us. It's the opposite of what marriage looks like. This isn't the model Luke and Christy are looking for in their marriage. They're putting all their burdens onto a different king. And that king is bearing the burden so that they can serve one another in love. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is a different kind of king. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to lay his life down as a ransom for many, as a payment for you and for me. See, Jesus is the king that you have been longing for your whole life. Every time you've had an unfulfilled desire, every time there's been a longing in your heart, a brokenness that you have felt is burdening you to the point that you're going to break, it's because you are not putting your trust in Jesus. And Jesus is there saying, my load is light. Come to me if you're heavy laden, if you're weary, I love it the way Eugene Peterson puts it. Are you tired? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Come to Jesus. It's literally a come to Jesus moment. I just, I just can't, I can't get this simple, simple message off my heart for you tonight in Counter Church. Who's your king? Who's your king? Who are you letting rule in your life? Who's in charge? Who gets to make the decisions? Now, here's the question. You might, you might have a couple of questions here. The first question is, well, how do I know if, I'm, if, I'm, if I've got the right king? Right. Well, for starters, you've got to keep checking. It's, it's not a case of just going to the census and going, Christian, on the box. You know, Great. Very nice. It looks good on the census. But it, it's much more a case of you've got to check again and again. But how do you really know? It's obedience. How do you know that the king is the king? It's about who you're obeying. 
How do you know who's Lord of your life? It's how you're living. It's what you're doing. And I give you a subtle one. It's how burdened you're feeling. Like, if you're here tonight feeling heavy, it's probably a good time to reorient your life around King Jesus again. Now, here's the other thing that you might be asking. You're saying, okay, that might be how I know I'm living like Jesus, but how do I... How do I even know that Jesus is the king I should be following? It's a really good question. And it's one that every person should ask themselves. But when you explore the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, when you explore the Old and New Testament, when you see church history and the way that fathers and mothers of the faith have nurtured it for thousands of years, inviting people into the presence of God, inviting people into the story of Jesus, It becomes pretty clear that there's something here. But there's one even more than that. It's one really simple way to know that Jesus is king. He's still here. He's still here. Jesus, you see, he died. But then, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for next week. He rose again. He rose again from the grave. And then your backup question might be, yeah, okay, that's what you believe. Sure, okay, agreed. That's what I believe. But I believe it because of an ancient text written from scribes who saw it in the first person, who risked their life, every one of them, to communicate that to the next generation. Eleven of the twelve, sorry, ten of the twelve disciples, we're not counting Judas who had his own issues, ten of the eleven remaining disciples were killed for their faith in Jesus. And the other one, John, was exiled on an island to spend out his days. Every follower of Jesus in the first century, you could tell they were a believer because of the way they couldn't help but share the gospel. You know the king is the king because his subjects can't help talking about how great their king is. That's a hallmark of us Christians, or it's meant to be. If you're here and now I just, I, I can't even imagine how many of us have had terrible experiences with church or really more specifically people, right? The church is the church. The church rarely does anything wrong because it's a bunch of people. It's just individuals doing stupid stuff, relying on their pride, forgetting who's the king. And if that's you and you're here and you've just been burned from some experience you've had because someone's forgotten who the king is, I'm so sorry. I just, I, I flippin' hate it. I just, it, it kills me that this is what we have done. This is why real is a value for us at Encounter because we just, we just can't have another Royal Commission. We can't have the need, more specifically, for another Royal Commission. It's so horrific. Anyway, I'm so sorry if that's you, if that's the experience you've had. But I just want to say to you what thousands, millions of believers in Christ have said to millions of people exploring their faith for decades, hundreds, millennia on end, don't put it all on the people. Come to Jesus. Just ask Jesus to bear that burden. People are going to let you down. You put your faith in the wrong king. Put your faith in King Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.